Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I feel like shining in your eyes. listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Gravity, a song by Glass Alice, a band made up of lifelong and childhood friends in Youngstown, Ohio. Glass Alice is our featured Ohio musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'd love to tell you a little bit more about them, how to find their music, and we'll play that whole song for you. But right now, let's add some logs to the fire, campers. We've got a really good Ohio mystery for you tonight. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, who spent an award-winning 30-year career at the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, what do you have for us tonight, Paula? A mystery that isn't going to seem like a mystery at all. That seems a little cryptic. Yeah, well, you're going to think this case is a slam dunk, but just hold on to your opinion till we're finished. We're going to talk this out with Jane Ann Terzillo. She's the author of a history press book called Unsolved Murders and Disappearances in Northeast Ohio. And she featured this wild case in her book, and she's offered to be an armchair detective. Oh, that's awesome. Well, let's have it. Our story begins on Christmas Eve in 1959. It's 6.40 p.m., and the Clark family is in the kitchen of their home in Mentor, Ohio. It's a white ranch house decorated outside with holiday lights. There's a Christmas tree in the dining room awaiting gifts for the four Clark children. Lois Clark is baking a pie, and Charles Roy Clark, her 35-year-old husband, is opening a can of pumpkin. Their 12-year-old daughter is standing next to him, waiting to take the can. Charles, they called him Chuck, is dressed in his uniform as Boy Scout leader of Troop 104, attached to the Mentor Methodist Church. He's going to be taking his scouts out Christmas caroling in a little bit. Oh, okay. This Norman Rockwell image is shattered a moment later. Lois hears a noise and thinks the can of pumpkin has somehow exploded. She turns to see her husband falling to the floor, blood flowing from his right temple. A bullet has ripped through the kitchen window. Chuck dies on the way to Lake Memorial Hospital. Mentor Police Chief Hathi quickly determines this was no accident. He puts together a scenario. A sniper positioned himself 
next to a sycamore tree 42 feet from the kitchen. He aimed at the window with a small caliber gun and pulled the trigger. The chief couldn't confirm his theory. The ground was frozen, so there were no footprints and no shell casings. But Hathi said there was no question in his mind. The Chuck was targeted. But who would want to hurt Chuck? Chuck was superintendent of the Methodist Church Sunday School. And between that and scouts, he had devoted much of his adult life to helping turn boys into responsible young men. He was a veteran, four years in the U.S. Navy. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he quit school one semester short of graduation and signed up. That happened a lot. Yeah. After the war, he joined Reliance Electric and Engineering Company, working his way up to design engineer, all without even finishing high school. And he traveled a lot as the company's liaison to the Navy Department. Chuck met his wife, Lois, when he was still in the Navy. He was on leave in Miami when he saw the dark-haired beauty, just 16 years old then. They married in June of 1945, just as the war was ending. Authorities soon learned that there may have been a reason someone wanted Chuck dead, and it wasn't because Chuck had done anything wrong. Turns out his wife, Lois, who taught alongside him at Sunday school, had a small collection of lovers. The most recent was a man named Floyd Eugene Hargrove. He went by the name of Gene. The two had begun their tryst a few months earlier. Hargrove came to the house often when Chuck was away. Lois admitted all of this right away to police. She said she'd broken it off six weeks before the shooting. Hargrove was the latest of seven men she'd had affairs with. Jean Hargrove was different, though. She was in love with him. But she admired and respected her husband, and she had no intention of divorcing him. Lois said her husband didn't know about her affairs. But one witness would tell police that Chuck did catch Hargrove at the house one day and ordered him out. Lois didn't think Hargrove could have killed her husband. Police thought otherwise. They picked him up before the day was done. He lived in Painesville, and he worked as a delivery truck driver for Moss Point Cleaners in Willoughby. Hargrove gave an interview to the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He said he felt bad about the affair, that he wrestled with a devil over it. But he also admitted that he once dreamed of killing Lois's husband, and that he was ashamed for having that thought. Hargrove had an almost airtight alibi for the time Chuck was killed. He had dinner with his boss, John Ozinga Jr., in Painesville, and left Ozinga's at 6.30 p.m. He said he went to the cleaners looking for a friend who worked there, but the cleaners was closed, so he drove to the house of another friend, Robert Diday, stopping for gas along the way. Then he went to Euclid to see his ex-wife Beverly and drop off presents for their five children. His ex, who told a reporter she left Hargrove the previous year because he used to beat her, confirmed the visit. Still, when Sheriff Evans was done calculating all of that activity, he found a 20-minute span that Hargrove couldn't account for. The questioning of Gene Hargrove continued for 10 hours, with no break and no sleep. At one point, he asked for a chance to think. Then... After asking and receiving assurances that Lois would not lose her children, he confessed. 
He gave a very detailed account, too. He said he found a twenty two caliber rifle in the basement of his apartment building and bought a box of shells at a Willoughby hardware store. He said he hadn't intended on killing anyone until the day of the murder. He said he parked a block away from the Clark house, took a position on the Clark's patio in view of the kitchen window, saw Clark standing alone at the kitchen window, and shot him. After that, he drove to a deserted road in Mentor-on-the-Lake and threw the rifle into Lake Erie. That, of course, became investigators' next stop. They sent divers in to look for the gun. They didn't find it. At the bottom of somebody. Well, the captain of the dive team said the waters were calm and there was no way they would have missed that gun in the shallow water if it was where Hargrove had said it was. There were some other things that bothered the prosecutor, Edward Ostrander. Hargrove had described standing on the Clark's patio 40 feet from the window, but the patio was only 15 deep. He couldn't have been standing on the patio when he shot Chuck. It also bothered him that Hargrove said Clark was alone in the window. A recreation of the scene suggested Hargrove would have had full view of the Clark's 12-year-old daughter who was standing right next to her dad waiting to accept the opened pumpkin can. And when Hargrove was asked about his weapon, he couldn't say whether it was an automatic or a bolt action. How could he not know? Hargrove was asked to take a lie detector test, and he declined, saying he'd already confessed. But he eventually agreed, and when he did, the polygraph cleared him. Police let him go. So Hargrove recanted his confession. He told the plane dealer he loved Lois and simply wanted to spare her any further suffering by giving his confession and ending the attention to the case. He didn't want a trial where she would be subjected to in-depth questioning about their affair. He figured he'd get a sentence of about seven years. I don't know why he thought it would be that low. Hmm. And he hoped Lois would wait for him and marry him when he got out. And so the search for Charles Clark's killer continued. In an interview with WJW-TV in Cleveland, Lois Clark pleaded with the public to pass on any information to aid police. Chuck's mother, Edith Clark, stood by her daughter-in-law and told viewers, instead of throwing dirt, why don't people think of the good she did? Her father-in-law told reporters that Lois was a daughter to them, and they hoped she would go with them to Rochester, New York, so they could help look after her and her children. They were 100% behind her. Investigators, meanwhile, widened their focus. Chuck traveled a lot, so they started looking into his trips. What did he do in his spare time on the road? Was there someone who might benefit from his death? Had he done something that someone else might be seeking revenge for? Lois Clark, by the way, I should mention, had been cleared by a polygraph test and investigators believed she had nothing to do with her husband's murder. And then, suddenly, Jean Hargrove was in the crosshairs again. Hargrove's boss, the one he'd had dinner with Christmas Eve, called the police chief on New Year's Day and told him that Hargrove had confided in him that he'd purchased a gun in Chardon on December 23rd and that he planned to kill Chuck the next day. Police checked with three stores that sold guns in Chardon and found one that had sold a used Springfield 22 caliber single-shot bolt-action rifle 
to a Robert G. McLaren. A handwriting expert compared the print on a registration card from McLaren with a sample of Hargrove's handwriting and determined they were one and the same. And more icing on the cake? Turns out Hargrove was in the Army Air Force during World War II and was a recognized expert marksman. So later that New Year's Day, police found and arrested Hargrove and charged him with first-degree murder. After several hours of questioning, he confessed again. This time, he mentioned that he had practiced on a utility pole, and he led police to the utility pole, where they found a slug dead center of a metal marker. Police pried the lead from the pole, and the lab determined it matched the one taken from Chuck's head. Case solved. Case solved. Still, no gun. This time, a psychiatrist who was a friend of Hargrove suggested Hargrove submit to an injection of truth serum. And he did. Under the influence of that drug, Hargrove sent police to Kirkland Hills and the Chagrin River. And guess what? What? They found They found the weapon? Within 12 minutes. It was in two feet of water. The stock had broken off and washed downstream, and a shell casing was still in the injection chamber. The rifle was sent to the lab. Hargrove said when he took the original lie detector test, he must have passed it because he truly believed himself innocent. But that since the truth serum revealed the location of the gun, he must have done it so he would accept responsibility for killing Charles Clark. He told a reporter, In my mind, I had rejected reality that I had killed Clark. I just couldn't make myself believe that I had done such a thing. While still under the influence of the truth serum, Hargrove was taken before a judge and arraigned. He needed help walking. He pleaded guilty. Hargrove's defense attorney was Lewis Turry Jr. of Wycliffe, and his first act was to get that guilty plea thrown out. The U.S. Supreme Court had already ruled that confessions obtained under truth serum were inadmissible, and that studies affirmed that truth serum only diminishes inhibitions while not necessarily producing the truth. It is still possible to lie. So on May 16, 1960, the trial began with the prosecutor seeking the death penalty. Defense attorney Turi told the papers, don't be surprised at developments that come out at the trial. And Steve, I think you're going to be surprised at developments that come out at the trial. That surprised me. Well, on the stand, Lois Clark shared the details of her affair. She said her and Jean met at her home most of the time when her husband was at work and several times at Jean's apartment. She acknowledged that she was in love with Hargrove, but that she told him it was best if he was free to meet someone else. They broke up, although they did see each other Christmas Eve morning, the day of her husband's death. This is like young and the restless. (laughs) It really is. She was asked about her other affairs and described trysts with a Willoughby police lieutenant. That was the one she broke it off with to be with Gene Hargrove. He denied even knowing Lois, though he was suspended and later resigned from the force. Another lover was a car salesman who stalked her and kept making calls after she broke up with him. Another was a hairdresser. The prosecutor suffered some serious setbacks in this case. The hardware store where the alleged murder weapon was purchased, 
The clerk couldn't identify Hargrove or the gun. He hadn't recorded the serial number because it was a particularly busy day. He was selling guns left and right for Christmas. It was part of the Christmas shopping season. The mentor fireman who retrieved a twenty-two caliber rifle from the Chagrin River couldn't say for sure that the gun in evidence was the one he had found. The handwriting expert who said a writing from the gun store matched a sample of Hargrove's writing Well, further testimony revealed the police had given Hargrove the gun store card with McLaren's name and had him write it over and over until it matched. The policeman who dug the slug out of the utility pole, he admitted he had put a nick in the bullet while removing it. And the bullet that was removed from Charles Clark, the chief had to admit he had forgotten to mark the slug for identification for five days after the coroner gave it to him compromising the chain of evidence. And this was interesting. Ballistics experts insisted the two bullets came from the same gun. But Turi argued that the killing bullet was so mutilated that there was only one rifling mark on that bullet compared to six rifling marks on the bullet retrieved from the utility pole. The defense contended that was not enough for such a positive opinion. And Hargrove's attorney called to the stand David Cowles, who was a retired chief of the Cleveland Police Department's scientific unit during the famous Sam Shepard case. Cowles did his own ballistics test with the same equipment the prosecution experts used and concluded that neither bullet, not the one from Clark's body, nor the one from the utility pole, came from the weapon that was retrieved from the river. Huh. You know what else Cowles did? What? The retired policeman went to the Clark's home for a first-hand look, and you'll never believe what he found. The Clark's property was adjacent to a vacant field, and there Cowles found a boulder surrounded by broken glass bottles and a piece of wood tacked to a nearby tree filled with holes the size of twenty-two caliber bullets. So somebody was out there target practicing? The field was a shooting range. Oh, man. Could Clark's death have simply been a tragic accident shot by someone doing target practice? When asked by reporters why someone would have been doing target practice in the dark, Turi said, wasn't it possible the shooter used the light from the kitchen window as a frame for the tree? It was on the same trajectory. And when the shooter missed the tree the bullet found Charles Clark. The state won the argument over whether Hargrove's confession could be played for jurors, although one might wonder if that helped or hurt them. In the tape, Hargrove was audibly groggy from the truth serum. Investigators were aggressive. At one point, Hargrove said, I told you I did it. I'll confess to killing him, but I don't know where the gun is. The sheriff responded, Get it off your chest and quit fooling around. Think of Lois. Think of the kids. Do you want me to tell the newspapers about your abnormal relations with her? Then the sheriff threatened to charge a doctor who treated Lois for a miscarriage. The defense got the sheriff to admit he was prepared to spread all the dirt about him and Lois to the newspapers and that he had promised to keep quiet if Hargrove confessed. Well, all the dirt came out at the trial. Hargrove took the stand to say he had been bullied and coerced into a confession. 
He said they questioned him from 10 p.m. Christmas Eve until the afternoon of December 26, a time in which he'd only had 15 minutes of sleep. He said police told them Lois and her children would be finished in Lake County, given what was going to come out at the trial. He said he loved her and wanted to spare her that. Hargrove revealed Lois told him in November that she was pregnant. Since it was likely his child, they went to a doctor who gave Lois a prescription. A week later, she had a miscarriage. That's when they decided it was best for them to end the affair. He said he never told his boss that he intended to kill Clark. Instead, Ozinga had told him that he had dreamed Hargrove had said he wanted to kill Clark. And about that bullet in the utility pole? Hargrove said he drove past it all the time and had seen children using it for target practice. He pointed out the pole to police when they were looking for details to confirm his confession. The prosecutor told juries that Hargrove was a heartless killer who, on Christmas Eve, murdered Clark before the eyes of his wife and children. He reminded jurors that Hargrove was an adulterer, a wife beater, and a reader of girly magazines, that he had assisted in an abortion, and that he failed to pay alimony to his ex-wife. The defense said the trial had shown it quite possible that Clark wasn't even murdered, but killed by a stray bullet from a careless shooter during target practice. The jury took five hours to decide. Hargrove was found not guilty. The jammed courtroom erupted in cheers. Hargrove may have been free to pursue a future with Lois, but they didn't. Lois collected 105000 in life insurance, packed her four children into a new station wagon, and moved to California. In December of 1960, she married a Fresno attorney, David E. Smith. Hargrove remarried and lived with his wife, Betty, in Cincinnati, where he worked as a salesman. He died of a heart attack in 1978. In Lake County, the case is closed. The sheriff and the prosecutor said they had the man who did it, and there was no point in continuing to investigate. Steve, I'm giving credit to all of this research to Jane Ann Trezillo. She made it very easy for me this week, and you can find an even more thorough account of this story in her book. That's always good, you know, getting somebody to help you out there. I know how hard you work. Yes, little break for me. (laughs) Well, it sounds like a good time to bring her on. I can't wait to hear what she has to say on the case. Like I said, tonight with us, we have Jane Andrezillo. Hi, Jane. Hi, how are you? Oh, thank you for being with us. Uh, Jane lives in Akron, and the uh, book that we referenced tonight is not your only book, is it? No, it's not. I'm probably best known for my Wicked Women of Ohio. Oh, are there any mysteries in that book? Well, of course, they're all mysteries. They're, you know, Wicked Women, they're women that didn't like to play by the rules. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's going to be great. I have got to check that one out. So seven of them, and they're all local history type stories, right? Right, they are. Well, some of them are just uh, Northeast Ohio, uh, which like this Unsolved Murders and Disappearances is just a Northeast Ohio one. And then I have a, one of the Wicked Women is a Northeast Ohio, but the rest are all all of Ohio. I couldn't even get into all of the details that are in your book because you really, really did your homework. So you got to tell us, 
What do you, Gene Hargrove, innocent or guilty? Oh, no, I think he was innocent. I think he was just kind of uh, weak-minded, maybe. When I'm reading the story, there are so many little pieces of evidence that are adding up. And then when you get to the trial and you start picking them apart one one at a time, I'm just Mm -hmm. amazed that that many pieces of evidence could have been wrong. So let's right. let's run through some of those. One thing that really uh, disturbed me about the case was this the gun and how he had sent police to one place it wasn't there then under the truth serum he sent them to another place and there was a gun there but ballistics showed at least for the defense uh, expert that that is not the gun that shot Clark or put the bullet in the utility pole. Right. What What do you think of that gun? I'm first of all. What? Why did he get rid of it? I don't think he. Um, uh, well, I don't think he got rid of it at all. I don't think he ever had a gun. Oh. I think so. You they, think they just I, found a gun that belonged to somebody else? Right. Well, the first place that he sent them, you know, they didn't find a gun. Right. And the second place, I I think they just got lucky and found. Uh, a gun, and because, you know, the gun was not, the stock was gone, and it was in poor shape. I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think he ever had a gun. And if you, you know, I in thinking about it, when the police found this gun that had been bought uh, in a hardware store in Chardon, uh, with a man's name of it, uh, was it Robert McLaren, McLaren I think, yes. Police never bothered to look to see if there really was a Robert McLaren. As far as I know and as far as my research turned up, they never even went to look to see if there was such a person. And I'm not really that swayed by the idea that they did sell a 22 caliber gun on that day because the clerk testified that it was the Christmas shopping season and they were selling so many guns that he didn't even right. bother to take the time to write the, the serial numbers down. So, right. you know, yeah, why wouldn't they have sold a, a twenty-two caliber gun that day? Right, and a twenty-two caliber, I think that's common gun. Yeah, I think it, I think it is pretty common. I mean, even when they talked about the target range in the backyard of the Clarks, they said yeah. the, the, the wood that was on the tree was filled with twenty-two caliber holes. Yeah. So, yeah. And and what I think about that is, you know, it was Christmas Eve and someone may have gotten a 22 as a present yes. on Christmas Eve and instead of waiting until the next morning to go out and shoot it, maybe they just wanted to go out and put a round through it, you know, and it just happened to go the wrong place. I don't and think that's a stretch man- at all. I mean, a lot of people exchange gifts Christmas Eve. I mean, when we oh, were we young, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. if you get it and you're all excited to try it, I totally sure. could see that happening. Sure. Yeah. Did police so. not know that there was a target practice site behind their house? Well, you know, Kathy, the uh, police chief, he after the uh, that night of the uh, of the death. Uh, he went out in the backyard, and as far as I could tell, all he looked at was that tree. There was a sycamore tree. I, I forget. They, they said like 40, 42 feet back from the house. Right. And it had a crotch in it, 
where he theorized that the shooter used it to steady his gun to shoot into the uh, into the kitchen. Now, uh, you know, the expert, David uh, Cowles, he looked at that and said, well, that was only four feet from the ground, and Hargrave was six feet tall. So he would have had to have been bending over to use that tree. So now whether uh, Hathi, the, the police chief, ever looked at the rest of the yard, I don't know. Yeah, I, actually, I didn't say that in the story, but I remember that now. They were saying if he, if Gene had kneeled down at that tree, the trajectory would have been totally wrong. So to have the right trajectory, he would have had to been like squatting down to take his shot. And who, who does that? I mean, how could you be comfortable enough to be that precise in your shot if you're like exactly. squatting? Plus, they said that Hargrove had been a, uh, uh, a sharpshooter in the uh, in the service, so he probably would have taken up a different position. Right. He would have taken up a comfortable position for himself, you know, to shoot. What do you say about the two confessions? He confessed not only once but twice. Do you think it, he really was swayed by love for Lois and wanting her not to suffer any attention? I think I think he was obsessed with her, and he thought he was protecting her. I, you know, maybe he even thought that that uh, she hired somebody to do it, but I don't think she did. But I think I think he did it. Sure, he did it to protect her. And like I say, I think he was kind of. Um, uh, easily swayed. Of course, you know, they they really went after him. You know, they wanted to solve this case, and I don't, I don't think they really cared whether they had the right person or not. That they just really went after him. They went. He went for hours without sleep or probably without food. And uh, yeah, police did that back then. That was, you know, that was okay to do. That was their strategy, and, sure. Yeah, it was a strategy. I think he just kind of gave in. It's interesting that he would confess, and yet he would finish his confessions saying, but I don't know where the gun is. Well, if you were going to confess legitimately, then just tell him where the gun is. And he couldn't say it because he didn't know where the gun was. Right, because he didn't know where the gun was. Yeah. Because he, he was not the shooter. I, I don't think he was. It, and you know, the other thing is that he would not, I don't think he would have shot into the kitchen window uh, with the daughter standing there. Because if he had missed and the daughter, something had happened to the daughter, think of how much, you know, he would have thought of how much pain that would have caused Lois. Right, if he was going to all of these lengths to protect Lois, such as confessing right. and being willing to go to prison for it, why would he have taken the risk of killing her daughter? That's a good point. Exactly. Plus the fact is, if this was a set-up job, if he did it or somebody else did it, was paid to do it, how would they know that, uh, that Charles was going to be in that window and when he was going to be in that window? Oh yeah, yeah. Good point. He only he only stepped into that window just to open a can of pumpkin. 
Yeah, if you're going to target somebody, why would you target a small kitchen window in, invisible from the backyard? Right. Why is that? Right. You're right. I saw the comment in your book where you said that the courtroom erupted in cheers when he was found not guilty. Why do you think the community was on his side? Well, it wasn't, I think that the courtroom was full of a bunch of women, number one. And he was quite good looking. And, you know, they had him all dressed up in a nice gray suit. You know, they always say if you're going to testify in court, wear gray or navy blue because that makes you the most believable look, you know, looking. Yeah. Um, and I think that this was such a sordid case. And with all these salacious details, and I I. I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, it was kind of just something that the community followed day after day after day. There was a lot of newspaper on it. Do you think, I I, I mean, clearly he had some charisma and he was really a nice looking man. But do you think they also believed his innocence? Or was it really just a matter of him being charismatic and handsome and and they didn't want anything bad to happen to him? No, I think... Think, of course, I wasn't there, but I think that maybe Turi, you know, was the uh, was his defense attorney, and I think he was just really good, and I think he, I think he kind of, you know, turned the tide, and and maybe the community just thought, yeah, you know, this guy is innocent. Okay. So Gene's boss, Ozinga, is part of his alibi and then ends up uh-huh. trying to throw him under the bus. What is motive it, could yeah. Ozinga have had to turn Isn't his friend in? Isn't that strange? I, you know, I, I went back and I, and I reread it when I knew we were going to do this. And I remember that it, it really struck me back when I wrote it. I, you know, I don't know. I, I wonder if Ozinga could have been jealous of him for some reason or maybe he maybe he had a uh, a case on Lois yeah. and uh, uh, that's all you know that's all I can think of the only thing I'd like to say is that David Cowles who was the the expert yes he was now he was a pioneer in the field of ballistics he was one of the of the country's best known uh, forensic experts I did not know that. Okay. And he started departments, uh, I think I think he started the, the polygraph program at uh, Cleveland. Okay. And he established the scientific investigative unit. He was there at the Shepherd case and at the Torso. Oh, the he Cleveland Torso murders. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was an interesting guy. Well, he had me convinced. I mean, if I had to choose between mm-hmm. the prosecutor expert and and David Cowles, I was leaning toward mm-hmm. David Cowles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jane, thank you so much for talking us through. This was a crazy case. I would never have heard of it if it were not for your book. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, Unsolved Murders and Disappearances in Northeast Ohio. And people can find that book and others if you go to Amazon.com and just type in Jane Ann Terzillo's name. We're going to put a link to it on our website. And you can go there and see all of her books. Yes. Jane, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
that's it for tonight, campers. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and all of our episodes, visit ohiomysteries.com. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please think about financially supporting us. You'll find links to our Patreon and PayPal pages on our website. And we are truly thankful for any spare change you can send our way to cover the podcast fees, equipment, and research costs. Now, let's tell you about our featured Ohio Musical Artist of the Week. The band Glass Alice started in Youngstown, Ohio in 2002 under the name Face Punch. The founding members, Eric Albenz and Mike Kermensky, are also lifelong high school friends. And they have added to their lineup Anthony Village on bass and Howard Burns on drums. Their latest album, So You Want It, was released this past winter. And in April, they recorded their first EP, Gravity, working with producer Jim Wirt, who worked with the likes of Incubus and Hoobastank. I gotta say, Incubus and Hoobastank were on all my mixes in the 1990s. You can follow Glass Alice on Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, Amazon Music, and all major streaming services. But right now, you don't have to do anything but sit back and chill. We're going to play their new hit, Gravity, right now, and we'll meet you back here at the campfire for another Ohio Mystery next week. Turn and hear your voice It was ringing clear Your gravity pulls me in Closer, closer to
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.